Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. This is Helen Hillix. I'm your host today, and I have two guests on, actually. I've got Christina Volmari and Anne Brennan, and we are very excited to have you. Our show today is called Join Us to Hear Christina Volmari from the Finnish Educational Agency Discuss Their Stellar Educational System. Let's hear why it is so different from the U.S. system and explore ways that we might be able to follow their example and ways that we're different. Anne Brennan, an experienced U.S. teacher, is also joining us. The Finnish educational system ranks among the highest rated in the world. Why is that? Is it because their education starts before their children can walk and offers free education all the way through college? Could it be their free lunches for all students and free transportation? Or is it their truly socially conscious focus, encouraging the students to understand their differences and to care about each other's needs? Or the way the students who learn more quickly are expected to help those who may struggle? Or is it their philosophy about not giving much of any homework until they're in high school? We'll hear about these practices as well as many others from Christina Volmari, Counselor of Education and Head of Information and Analysis at the Finnish National Education Agency for Education. Anne Brennan, an experienced educator, will join us in this fascinating journey into the world of exploring what works best to educate our children and young people and why. Join us. So here we are. I'm not going to do any interrevolutionary news today because I have a feeling that we have so much to talk about. And um, let's just get started and dive right in. I'd like to welcome you both. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. And and Anne, welcome to you. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to have this conversation because there is just an unbelievable amount of stuff to talk about. Um, I know that we have different systems. I know that we have different students. I know that we have different cultures. And so I I really want to be sure to try to have a neutral conversation today about what works and what doesn't work. And to see if we can take the best from both systems and see what we can come up with in our conversation today. Um, first, I would like to talk about, uh, Christina, I'd like to, to hear you talk a little bit about how did Finland start this, the, the kind of education system that we see today in Finland? How did that start and what is it based on? Well, the present system uh, started evolving already in the 1960s when uh, there was political discussion about a comprehensive system which does not stream or track students. And it uh, first met with a lot of resistance, of course. Um, People saying that the more gifted students would suffer with, with the whole age group in one class. Uh, then uh, in the 1970s, we really got started Uh, we actually copied our systems from Sweden, which is very um, funny in a way, because we've gone very different ways, and Sweden is doing very differently. Uh, we can talk about later that later if, if there's time. Uh, but the, the most important thing maybe is that education has always been very much in focus in our country. Uh, Finland was uh, for a long time a very, very poor country. 
Uh, we never had an aristocracy. We never had a real upper class. So really the uh, way up along the social ladder has always been education and therefore it enjoys a great esteem and everybody who works in education uh, enjoy this esteem as well. Very interesting. I, I did not know anything about Finnish history, of course, and so that that's a very interesting um, description. And I, I want to segue into something that I've heard from American uh, parents and educators alike when, when being compared, quote-unquote, to the Finnish system. Um, I, one of the things that I've heard is that America has a much more diverse population and that a lot of the uh, practices of the Finnish school system wouldn't work because the U.S. has such a diverse population um, economically and ethnically and languages and all of that. Um, I would like both, can you start out, Anne, talking about some of those issues and and then I'd like to switch back to Christina and see if if there is any response you have about whether that's true, whether they really are that different or not. Um, yeah, I can just speak from my, you know, my personal experience um, teaching in public schools. Um, first of all, I'm just really happy to be here, and I'm really excited to learn more about the Finnish system. Um, it, it fascinates me. I'd love to hear more about how we can apply whatever we can. Um, my experience is, yes, we have, you know, quite a bit of linguistic diversity, and, and I am an ELD teacher, so I'm a teacher who teaches the students who are recent immigrants who come to school without any English at all or very little, and I teach middle school, so I'm teaching 12-, 13-year-olds. Um, and in San Diego, there's quite a bit of linguistic diversity, but it kind of depends, you know, school by school, district by district. But I know, like, Los Angeles, for example, has, I think, 80 different languages spoken. So I am curious, I am, I'm really curious to speak with our other guests about how you know, how that works when a student comes with, you know, without speaking, the, you know, the, the primary language and, you know, how that's integrated because I had seen doing a little bit of research that students aren't, it doesn't seem that students are separated based on ability at all. I'm wondering how teachers address that. Christina? Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought you wanted to intervene in between. Yes, I do admit, of course, that, that uh, the United States would definitely be more diverse um, in many senses, but but we are not as homogenous as people tend to think. Because if you look at our schools, they would be very very much diverse socially, um, because we we don't uh, we don't uh, parents don't uh, do school shopping, what we call school shopping. Uh, we've always wanted the parents to trust that the the school close to my house is as good as the next one. And, and this has kind of uh, realized quite well, so that, for example, in primary school, uh, 85% of the children, even in the metropolitan area, go to their nearest school. And the reason for not going to the nearest school will not be something like uh, poor kids or immigrant kids in the school or, or something like that, but it would be a, a different language program because schools can choose their language program very, very um, um Autonomously, so if somebody would like to have uh, Chinese as their first language, they would go 
to another school. And also, um, people always say that we have so little immigrants. Yes, that might be true on the average. We have at the moment something like 6%, which to you would seem a ridiculously low uh, proportion. But looking at it uh, locally, then it's a real uh, issue because, uh, of course, the migrants would be concentrated in the bigger cities, in certain areas in the bigger cities, so that we would have, for example, in Helsinki, which is the capital, we would have some schools where 75% of the pupils would have a migrant background and the kind of linguistic diversity would there, of course, be, be very, very high. Um, now, I don't remember, Anne, what you asked something specific about not segregating children, was it, to different schools or different uh, ability levels? Yeah, that was it. And this was something that we started in the 1960s and 70s. I used to be a teacher for 20 years, and when, when we started with the comprehensive school, we did some ability um, streaming so that you had... Uh, uh, um, basic, intermediate and advanced courses in, in foreign languages, mathematics. But we realized uh, very quickly, actually, in five to ten years, that uh, there's a dead end in this system because if you took the lowest course, then you couldn't go on until uh, to, to general upper secondary uh, school and university. And, and this dead end is something that we have systematically tried to get rid of because we believe in equity. So equity is the foundation of, of our system, and whenever we feel that equity is threatened, then we then we jump. Even if PISA results go down, then it doesn't stir us so much. Uh, but but if if we think that, for example, the differences between the schools are getting bigger, then we are really worried. Um, if you if you are familiar with the PISA results, you would know that we have among the smallest differences between the schools uh, in the world. And that's quite an achievement, uh, considering that we don't have many, um, we don't have really uh, external quality assurance. We don't have inspections. Um, accountability, external accountability is very low. So basically, quality assurance in the school is based on the self-evaluation of and self-assessment of the school and the teachers and so on. So it's quite um, astonishing, actually. But that I'd like. The, yeah, can I yeah. comment on that? I, it is it is astonishing and so encouraging to me as an inner revolutionary. You know, one of the, the the three principles that we try to live by in at the innerrevolution.org are oneness, accountability, and mutual support, and. That's one of the reasons I, I, I wish I had remembered to say this in the very beginning, but I'll say it right now, that that's one of the reasons I was so attracted to having you on the show, Christina, is because I believe that the Finnish educational model really manifests those three principles. You know, the oneness, which you are talking about, you know, you believe in equity. We are each other. We are all yeah. the same, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I love that the way that you have handled that and then you're talking about um, accountability you know that the accountability is not the same as it is in some other places like the United States where there's a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of external accountability yeah. um, but you have this system built in of 
of internal accountability, you know, being able mm-hmm. to self-evaluate and, and be more self-aware. And that was one of the things that I also noticed about the descriptions of your social focus of your programs is starting at a very young age that you teach children. And I'd like to talk about this a little bit more later, but that mm-hmm. you teach children how to care about one another and what each other needs. And I think that's an amazing focus. And, I, and I'm and i not saying, because I know, I know Anne personally, and I know that she definitely tries to promote these principles in her classroom, too, in the U.S., but it's not an age, you know, I don't believe that it's a system-wide focus the way it is in Finland. And then the third principle is mutual support, which is doing what's for the highest good of all, Believing that if we if we support the whole, that the whole will support us, and that's what I hear you saying when you when you're talking about um, even if it brings down the the overall grades, we believe in equity, and that to mm-hmm. me is mutual support. That we have to support the whole, and we have to trust that it's going to support us, and that's what I hear when you're saying about how astonishing it is that you have the lowest difference between, you know, between all the different schools from the highest to the lowest, you have the lowest margin there, because you believe in mutual support and doing what's for the highest good of all, and just trusting that that's going to work out, so it's mm. it just sounds like an amazing system, and mm. I want to... Did you have anything to say, Anne, before we go on about what Christina has shared about the diversity and the the way that they try to integrate that? No, no, I I I, um, I feel complete with that question. Oh, thank you. Okay, okay, great. Okay, so I I kind of interrupted you, Christina. Did you have more to say about that? No, I think I, I could spend two hours talking about this, but I think it's a good idea to move on with your questions, maybe. Uh, okay. Um, did you have any, do you agree with me about the the way that I'm comparing the oneness, accountability, and mutual support to the Finnish system? Do you also see that relatability? Yes, I do. It sounds very familiar to me. And, and uh, what you said earlier at the beginning, that we start educating children from a very young age and uh, it depends how you, um, that, that's true if you think of educating uh, in a very wide sense, because um, something which is very typical in Finland is that actual school starts very late, so it starts at the age of seven. And before that, it's all based on play, it's kindergarten, it's early childhood education, etc. But we do have a plan there, and you, you, it seems that you have, have uh, read it because you uh, described it so accurately, so we have uh, a very strong element of what we call entrepreneurship. Uh, this is a word which can very easily be misunderstood, but with entrepreneurship we mean also inner entrepreneurship, which is taking responsibility for yourself, taking responsibility for others, and taking responsibility for your community. And that's a very strong element in early childhood education curricula. That's a very strong uh, central element also in, in the curriculum for basic compulsory education. That just blows my mind. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it is so the core of exactly as you said, entrepreneurship in the mm-hmm. social, in the social emotional way. It is training what, you know, might be a trendy way of saying emotional intelligence. 
that in that and accountability that accountability piece so i just i just love that 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 is the focus of the training and rather than being focused again on these externally measured things you're focusing mm-hmm. on you've taken a completely different track in terms of focusing on building the character development first mm-hmm. i mean yes. that's how it sounds to me yeah Yes, and actually, if you look at the new curriculum for compulsory education, you would see that the the focus is on what we call transversal skills. So we have entrepreneurship, we have uh, sustainable development, we have global citizenship, we have multiliteracy, ICT skills. Those are the kind of core, not the different subjects. So the different subjects in schools, actually, they serve these transversal skills. So we have defined those transversal skills first one of them is this uh, entrepreneurship so so uh, I think that's a, a, a fairly nice uh, approach um, to the children and, and sort of more holistic than than doing what you just described as something measurable so uh, and it's um, this also makes it very nice to to be a teacher in Finland so whenever we have teacher groups from abroad uh, from the United States and other countries they always say that they would love to be teachers in Finland because of the lack of external accountability and the freedom we don't have national examinations either so uh, during the first nine years of uh, compulsory education the teachers can teach uh, according to this holistic vision and their vision of, of what is good for the children and the curriculum of course without having to think about national examination and how their pupils uh, will score in them and how they will look uh, based on the results and, and yet your students score well yeah well in, in yeah PISA is not everything you have to remember but that they they do yes no, I know it's. I, I certainly know it's not everything. But I get yeah. just just for those listeners to the show later who say, well, you know, so what, you know, what does that turn into? You know, what kind mm-hmm. of students, you know, do they become? They will be evaluated in the world market, you know, for mm-hmm. for having certain skills, and your students do do develop them. Yeah, yeah, and some one other question that we very often get is that. Uh, uh, how do you, um, because we don't encourage competition between the children, for example, uh, pupil assessment is uh, to a very late stage, uh, not grades, it is based on verbal, written verbal, um, or can be written or verbal uh, feedback saying that uh, Peter is doing nicely, but he should maybe pay more attention to, to equations or something like that. So. So we get this question that, that um, how do they manage in life? Because life is all about competition. But what we answer is, of course, that it's, um, the competition is within you. And anyway, if you look at the big inventions and the big innovations in the world, they are not done by one people alone. Uh, so so if, what we want is to promote cooperation. And if you pr- promote a very um, strict or very fierce kind of competitive approach for the children where they compete against other children, then we don't think that's necessarily a good idea. You know, this this could be taken right out of our handbook for the inner revolution. 
those those words about you know because we totally believe that that you are only competing with what you did yesterday and trying yes. to and trying to reach your own potential and i think again you're you're speaking about the the setup for such a sense of separation from one another when everything is based on so much competition you know you're either mm-hmm. a winner you're a winner or mm-hmm. a loser and whichever way you whichever way that goes you end up feeling separate and i i just really believe in my heart that so much of the contentiousness and the anger in our society is is because kids are compared to one another from an early age and they feel like they have to fight against each other as you were saying mm-hmm. for a place in the world rather than what you're saying is you know we have to have a sense of oneness and we have to do the best each one of us can do but realize that we are only one little person in the community of people yes. who can who together can accomplish whatever there is to accomplish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um mm-hmm. and would you speak a moment to you know any differences or similarities that you see in the system here oh well <laughs> Sure. Yes, I, I can find myself feeling so envious. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just have to admit it. I kind of want to cry. But um, I don't blame you. Oh, I do not blame you. Did you want to say something else? Um, but yes. No. Yeah. I, um, but I, I know there's still lots of things that you know I can I can even apply in my own classroom. And um, but yeah, there is you know. I, I emphasize, like, a lot of what you're saying, Christine, as well, like the personal kind of goal setting or, you know, because there is a big emphasis here, as we know, of the ratings and, you know, the scores on different things. We have a lot of, like, computerized exams, and there's, there's like, whole mm-hmm. companies now that, you know, come into our schools and, you know, consult, mm-hmm. and then we have to turn in, you know, data every few weeks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But so we're kind of living yeah. within that, but... You know, we have lots of us find ways to um, do the best we can to tell the kids, you know, okay, this is your, this is where you are. But I try as hard as I can to just say, don't worry about where anybody else is. You know, you're not, mm-hmm. that doesn't help you at all, you know, and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. really in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, you're just, I just want you to focus on your own development, your own improvement, you know, and that's going to help everyone. And, you know, if you are, let's say you are a higher level, and I do emphasize helping other people as well. So I try to emphasize as much as I can in my own classroom culture, mm-hmm. um, and it, it has it's it has had a, a very liberating effect because a lot of my students are uh, b- significantly below um, grade level because we do have the segregated type of classes. Mm-hmm. You know, we are. Um, I I'm hoping to get rid of. That you know, in my school, I'm in some positions of leadership in my school, and there's there's not complete buy-in. I think even from the parents, you know, honestly, at my school, there's in our community, there's you know, we do mm-hmm. have that competitive culture in the United States, right? So mm-hmm. parents who have students who have high achievement, they want um, honors classes, let's say, yes. what we call them, yeah. honors classes, right? The top. And um, our science department, though, has just, they just put their foot down, I don't know, I think 10 years ago or so, and they just said, no, we're not having that. We want all of our mm-hmm. kids together. Um, mm-hmm. 
and, and they're doing it. And so I've been pushing for the last couple of years. I think I'm almost there <laughs> uh, with mm-hmm. our department, the English department. I want to get rid of it, and I think uh, uh, some other teachers do as well. I don't know if, you know, parents would go for it or if our school leadership was, but would as well because, you know, statistics do show that, you know, no student, you know, you don't become less intelligent because there's a student in your class who, you know, doesn't yes. read as well as you do. I mean, it. You know, it only mm-hmm. benefits everyone, study after study after study shows that, you know, it only benefits yeah. everyone when, when students are able to um, learn from each other. So, you know, I hope we can continue to go that direction. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, that's so good to hear, Anne, and I'm so happy that the teachers mm-hmm. are recognizing that and fighting for it within the system mm-hmm. you know maybe mm-hmm. maybe someday there'll be a full-on inner revolution and it'll cause an <laughs> external revolution and you know we'll we will upend the system and go, go more, more towards something like they have in Finland um, mm-hmm. one of the questions that I wanted to ask you to Christina which kind of relates to what you were saying Anne is do you know the comparative uh, percentages, let's say, of children in Finland who might be uh, identified as um, autistic or learning disabled in some way? And do you even do you even do such things as label them as having certain issues, or do you just uh, try to accommodate them on an individual level? Uh, both and we don't, we don't label is not a word we would use um, what we do is we always try to avoid stigmatizing children um, and many many of the kind of uh, methods and approaches used in the schools um, support this for example in Helsinki you can see many schools where uh, the first uh, two or three school years have been combined into one grade. So if you ask a kid in a school, which grade are you in? He would say, I'm in one and two. And one of the objectives there is, of course, that some are slow learners and some are quick readers. And because they are together, then nobody will be stigmatized as in a smaller group or, or less uh, versatile group. When we talk but special needs education, we have, of course, children who need special uh, support. Um, we used to, we, we don't uh, categorize the, the kind of um, problems they have. So we, we, uh, um, we just say that they have special needs. Uh, mostly we deal with these children in mainstream education. We have some... Uh, 10 to 12 percent of the age group uh, need some kind of uh, um, intensive or special needs uh, support. Uh, Half of these children are totally integrated into mainstream education and then uh, half of the other half uh, are uh, working uh, part-time in a mainstream classroom, part-time in in their own little group, etc. We have a very, very small group of pupils uh, who would be in special schools. Uh, Those children would be uh, very uh, severely handicapped, blind or deaf or, or mentally handicapped, but we try to integrate them. And and this has been very hard. It might have sounded before that being a teacher uh, in Finland is like being in heaven. <laughs> in part it is, but it's also everybody who's been in a classroom knows that it is the most difficult profession in the world. Um, and, and the responsibility for all these pupils is huge. You have the future in your hands. Yes. Um, and um, 
And what was I going to say about the yes, about the kind of uh, integration and and uh, Finnish teachers are amazing uh, in that sense that that they are so like in the 1990s we abolished the the kind of inspections. Uh, we have a very thin core curriculum. The schools had to start doing their own curriculum. Um, since uh, 15 years back, we started very strongly to integrate special needs students, uh, and the teachers just cope. Um, and one of the reasons is, of course, that they're very well trained. We can cream off the best candidates for teacher education. It's very popular to become a teacher. And we don't take the academically gifted. We take the, the most uh, motivated and those who showed most aptitude. So that's one of the secrets why they adapt, because they are professionally so motivated. Um, but there are different kinds of um, mechanisms or practices used in schools to deal with uh, extra pressure from, from children with special needs and uh, might be kind of uh, flexible grouping uh, and also co-teaching quite a lot so that you have a special needs uh, teacher in the classroom at the same time with you. Um, and the one, one thing which is uh, interesting is, of course, when we say that we don't have uh, uh, ability um, stream, what do you call it, tracking or, or segregation, then, then we do use in schools uh, flexible grouping, So, uh, but, but they tend to be temporary and, uh, and they are not called basic or advanced, they would be called the bunnies or the squirrels or something very sort of endearing. Right. And, uh, and, and, it's, uh, and, and the one thing which is different to many countries, uh, I was told by a special needs colleague, is that this kind of being in special needs groups in Finland is not stigmatizing because it is so common that every pupil is now and then in remedial instruction because after school hours, because remedial instruction is a subjective right to every child if they're lagging behind or if they've been ill. So it's it's a, a permanent mechanism which which doesn't uh, stigmatize the, the pupils in, in 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 any way. But it's it's of course hard for the teachers to have a very homogeneous group and also to have children with special challenges in their classroom. Yes, I, I'm sure it is. I, I read that the, that 33% of children in the lower in the first few years receive some sort of extra help, and I think you're, you're speaking to that. Is that <clears throat> excuse me an, an accurate number? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that special help would be remedial instruction, which which um, right, which would you be mentioned, just like extra lessons in mathematics. Yes, um, that's amazing. The other the other thing that I read, uh, I think it was that. The cost per student in Finland is 30% less than in the U.S., which just yeah. bl- blew my mind. I mean, with with everything that it sounds like you do, uh, I, I, and and that college is free in or mm-hmm. not free. It's it's funded by the state, you know, of course, funded by the taxpayers, but yeah. um, but it's free to each student at the time that they're attending. And yet, it's still 30% less, which, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder uh, about whether the, the competition factor plays in there, but in the U.S. anyway. But I th- think that's a whole other uh, conversation. The other thing that I read, and this was kind of an old article, I believe, that in 2008, that the beginning salary for teachers, even though, like you said, they take you take the top ten percent, I believe, of mm-hmm. of the um, p- 
people who want to be teachers and that mm. and I think it was 2010 they said that there were 6600 people who applied for 660 jobs mm. so you really are and that all teachers have master's degrees yeah um, you know, all of those statistics. But the other thing, yeah, that they started out in 2008, that they started out at uh, $30,000, basically twenty nine nine, and that within 15 years that they were making 102% of the uh, national average of all college graduates. So is that accurate, that they start out with a fairly low salary, but that they, that as you stay in the system, they they their uh, salaries become more comparable to other professions. Well, it doesn't sound very familiar because uh, the Finnish uh, sal- career, the salary structure for teachers is rather flat. So actually, the starting salaries are compared to other graduates. W- those would be higher because if you go to industry, you're not very paid very much because the expectation is that when you climb the career ladder, you will get more. Okay. Um, the teacher salaries in general are, are, are OECD average, um, and um, and if you compare, like um, OECD does compare the salaries nowadays to other graduates, then if you if you compare them to all tertiary graduates, it looks very nice. But if you compare to all um, um, uh, master's degree holders, then I would say that. Um, uh, primary and secondary teachers would earn something like uh, nearly something between 86 to 90 percent of the uh, actual salaries of other uh, master's degree holders. And if you mm-hmm. look at upper secondary education, that would be uh, more than over their level. So, so I always say that the salary is not the reason to become a teacher, but it's also not the reason not to, not to become a teacher because in many countries you have to choose away the teaching profession because you can't afford becoming a teacher. Right. So in Finland you can afford, but you don't do it for the money. Right, I understood that. I mean, I think that Anne certainly would <laughs> would verify that in the United States, right? <laughs> yes. That, you know, you don't become a teacher for the money, but, you know, you you become a teacher for the passion. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so another another thing that I found very interesting about the Finnish system is, is the way that I think it is by the by secondary education, you begin. Um, I think they that again the same article that I read said that that something like 66% of Finnish students go on for advanced education is that in the two tracks would you talk a little bit about those two tracks the vocational and the yeah. I don't know if it's called academic or it's called general upper secondary yeah actually the percentage is much much higher so so we estimate that from the the comprehensive or compulsory school leavers uh, only 10% don't go uh, uh, continue immediately. Uh, so that would be closer to 90% who continue and apply for, for upper secondary. And uh, one of the sort of exotic things about Finland is that vocational education and training is very popular. So we estimate that uh, when the kids apply, then half of them apply uh, primarily to vocational education and training and the other half to general education. 
Um, the good thing about whatever you choose is, again, that we have got rid of all dead ends. So, so from vocational education and training, you, you can go to higher education and you can, you can end up with a PhD. So, so it's a system that works because the, uh, the, the thinking behind that is, of course, that not all children come from homes where the parents can guide you in your studies and your choices. So it's important to not have any obstacles so that you can change your mind later in your life. You want to become a carpenter. Later, you want to become a scientist. That's that's fine with us. It's it's completely possible. Wow. That is so, also so completely unusual. Um, now, I'd like to skip back down to um, another element of the, the younger kids is that you don't give homework and when they're younger and I think it said you know there is some homework when you get to be in your teen years but even then it's not there's not very much homework and is that accurate well actually there is homework but the kids don't do them (laughs) because (laughs) same here (laughs) (laughs) sounds familiar yeah, when, when the first yes. PISA results came out in 2001, then everybody says, because we have the shortest school years and the instruction time is the, the lowest, among the lowest in the world. So kids spend very little time in the classroom. And then the general theory was that they must have a lot of uh, homework. And then PISA started to ask background questions and it turned out that they don't do homework either. So, so they are given homework even at primary level, not as much, of course, as, as upper, upper or lower secondary when they are teenagers. But, but as Anne said, they don't do them anyway. So, uh. and and as teenagers, they don't do it either, or they just don't do it when they're little. Uh, no, 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 I think that particularly they don't do them when they're teenagers. So, so there's. Um, uh, some of them do, of course. Some of them are, are not all kids are like that, but but uh, a lot of kids are, are quite uh, lazy to do their homework. So so it's um, what we are trying to do now with the new curriculum is to kind of bring back the joy of learning. And uh, but I think that it's a, it's a kind of um, lost case with te- a certain type of teenagers, which is the typical type to to expect that they would do a lot of homework. I don't I, know if Anne agrees with this. Yes, we, yeah, they don't do, virtually no student at our school does work outside of the classroom that we can verify. We offered this year, all the students received Chromebooks, like their own personal, you know, little computer, Mm -hmm. and with the thinking that that would, you know, provide some equity because we do see such a, such a difference between, you know, the lower income students and students who don't have access to, you know, computers and books and things and we thought you know, I, th- I know some people thought that well if they can bring it home then they they should be able to finish mm. all their work because we have just a lot of students who just really don't fin- they don't finish their work in class and then we have to move on and they just never mm. finish th- you know don't turn things in and um, but yeah no they didn't <laughs> nobody does any work outside of class so yeah, so, um, yeah. So we've kind of abandoned that as well. But our district actually um, adopted that policy officially last year. There was like a two-year, a group of people that met, um, and I was on it, um, to, to come up with a district-wide homework policy because there is such there was such discrepancy and different expectations, and um, parents were on the panel as well because a lot of the drive to give homework more and more now, it's the parents that want it. Um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, some do, some don't, though, right? Some parents hate that we have, that they have to do this battle with their child, you know, mm-hmm. on, on these weekday nights and they have sports and all these other things, you know, but then you've got all these parents who really want that. And um, so we were trying to find the happy medium. We did a lot of research and the, the research did show that it doesn't make much of a difference um, in achievement until the later secondary years, you know, like high school. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a policy now that you're supposed to only give 10 minutes per grade level of the child. So, like, a first mm-hmm. grader is only supposed to get 10 minutes. Okay, and, that's um, interesting. A seventh grader so is only supposed to get 70 minutes. So among our departments, you know, we try to only give, again, like 20 minutes. But, again, nobody does it. So we, mm-hmm. I just try to t- have my students read. That was a question I had for you, Christina. And, but, um, Helen, if you have a, something else to ask. No, go ahead. Um, go ahead. You know, just like the the emphasis on reading, because we see the achievement um, uh, is the highest among students who really, like, choose to read for pleasure. And um, mm-hmm. so we do try to emphasize that, or a number of us educators, you know, in our language arts department, instead of doing, you know, the, the hammering of the little reading passages in the test, but really trying to introduce a lot of books that we think they will enjoy and just promoting that interest and that engagement. Is that a big focus for you all as well? Absolutely. Re- reading is very much in focus and has been, um, um, this is a, a, this Finland uh, has been a sort of reading society so that um, mm-hmm. uh, it's not only the school which has achieved the results that we are getting, it's, it's the kind of very learning conducive uh, environment which it has been so that the most families would uh, have a newspaper carried to their homes in the morning, people would be, would be reading at home. We have subtitles on TV. We, the children watch a lot of American TV series and films, and they all have subtitles. So uh, that, that is quite important as well. They, they, start, um, they, they learn to read, and they learn to read quickly because they have to. Uh, one of the worries we have now at the moment are the boys, because the the boys don't read so much. They spend too much time on their computers. Girls Mm -hmm. tend still to be quite avid, avid readers. Boys' writing skills are going down, really worrying, boys' writing skills. So so we are trying to do something about that with the the new new curriculum and and what we call the kind of... uh, uh, phenomenon-based learning that uh, or multi multidisciplinary approach that we don't teach. Uh, schools should offer at least one such a module per year. When you look at the start looking at the phenomenon through the phenomenon and not through the subject, so the subjects would be integrated. For example, um, global warming. It would bring the the subjects together, but uh, around the real real issue. And I'm sure you've been using that that kind of approach for ages. But that's now compulsory for all the schools. So we're trying to get to the boys and and get their appetites up, if you know what I mean, because they are not so interested in schools. I listened to a Swedish researcher actually um, a few months ago, and he said that Swedish 16 to 25-year-olds use um, the internet for 40 hours per week. Woo! <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, I don't think that's very far from any other, other country. So I think it's, it's a similar pattern. So that's really worrying. It is, that is just frightening. 
just yeah. absolutely terrifying the the addiction to the computer yes. and that's what it is you know especially among the males and i don't know whether either one of you has any idea why that might be so that males are so much more attracted to i mean i i, I have a stepson who was completely addicted to the computer games uh you know and sitting in front of the computer and and doing the violent you know, war game kind of games. I mean, we prohibited it when he was with us, but it, it, it was just blew my mind how much time he would spend on that computer doing the, and, and maybe the violence and the testosterone mm. kind of based activity yeah. is, you know, is, is the explanation for it. But do you guys have any other ideas about why males are the ones that become addicted to the computer and not females so much? Maybe it's because I always say that it's, it's not very easy to be a boy in today's world because girls are so accomplished and the girls are really taking over. So maybe it's a safe environment, <laughs> but I'm not a psychologist so, and I haven't been a teacher for 16 years, so maybe Anne can answer the question I, I think that's I, can. I think that's a very good guess Christina I think that's a very <laughs> good guess you know and and pornography of course you know not that mm. the teenagers are spending 40 hours a week on pornography I don't think that's mm. the case I think it's much more the violence but I think that yeah. you know the the male testosterone and the emerging sexuality and not knowing what to do with it maybe gets channeled into that violent focus and yeah, and many of the mm, and many of the computer games are very sexy if you look at the adverts, then, then oh yeah, looking at how women are depicted in those, they are it's just awful. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Did you have an, any ideas, Anne, about why that appeals to males more than? Mm, no, I mean I don't know much. I'm not a psychologist either, but I I just know that they are drawn to it, and um, I don't know. I mean I know they they love movement and. They're, you know, they are kind of geared to a little bit toward competition. I mean, they, and all of that. So it's just very rewarding for them to be in that kind of environment, you know, and they love to compete with each other, see who's got the highest score on things. And, but I don't, I don't know why exactly they're more drawn to it than girls. Yeah, it's funny that you say they love movement. They love movement on a computer screen. They don't actually like to move. <laughs> I know. Well, they do. I mean, if they they need to move more, you know. I I don't I don't know if I'm I should say they need to move more than girls do, but they they do move <laughs> around a lot. You know, they need more physical um, expression. Activity. You know, they're just like they they they, they want to you know to get up and move around. Like, you know, they that, seem to that, need that more than the the girls do. But I know it's funny though. But they will sit motionless. <laughs> On those games for hours at a time. So I don't understand that completely. Their eye movement, you know, they like to watch the movement. You know, they're more attracted to watching things moving on a screen and things like that than the girls are. And I don't don't know exactly Mm. why. Yeah, that's very interesting. Speaking of movement, it reminds me of something else I read, that you have 75 minutes of recess for younger kids at school uh, compared to 27 minutes in the U.S., uh, and that you have, like you were saying, a shorter day, or do you have a shorter day, or is it just a shorter year, Christina? Uh, shorter days, basically, so so um, 
both. We have shorter years probably, but shorter shorter weeks uh, as well. I don't know about the reasons because it's it's um, it depends on the school again. But uh, we say that one lesson is sixty minutes, but it has to have a break. And normally, it would be a forty-five minute lesson plus fifty minute break. But then, of course, the schools group them nowadays so that they have uh, ninety minutes and have a longer break. But there's very much emphasis on physical education so we have this uh, national project called the moving school where schools can join the project and redo their school yard so that they are more um, motivating to, to move around and, and also something that I'm personally very proud of is that in the new uh, curriculum that we started with a couple of years ago then and what we did uh, was not what many countries, when their results are going down, they increase the number of academic subjects, but we did the opposite. We increased the number of hours in physical education, in arts, crafts and music, because we think that those are, are vital uh, subjects to, to support the learning in general. So I'm, I'm very happy about that personally. And, and is that helping? We don't know yet because it's only been, the new curriculum has only uh, been actually implemented locally for one year, but I, oh. I, I would be very surprised if it didn't. Because uh, if, you, if you think of handicraft, for example, uh, that's a practical subject where you actually exercise a lot of uh, skills. You do mathematics, you do geometry, uh, you, you do aesthetics, etc., etc. you name it. Right. So, so they are undervalued subjects thinking, oh, it's just knitting. But it's much more. I completely agree. And, and I know there have been long-standing studies about how playing the piano, for instance, helps with mathematics, which mm-hmm. for, the, for the same reason. So yeah. um, that's very interesting. Another thing that I read was that uh, teachers teach for four subjects, blocks and then they have two to do whatever development uh, preparation is that still accurate also no it doesn't sound familiar so so normally teachers um, it's it's very much up to schools have full autonomy in organizing their work but according to the uh, uh, collective agreement on salaries and working conditions then uh, uh, primary school teachers teach 24 lessons per week and they have to be available uh, two to three hours per week for consultation with parents, for uh, a consultation with, with uh, their colleagues, etc. But on uh, everything outside that, they can go home and do their preparatory work wherever they want. So there's no obligation to stay at the school except the 24 plus three uh, the more up you move according uh, along the, the level of education, the lower the teaching hours are. So that, for example, mother tongue teachers and language teachers would be teaching 18 lessons per week. So it's uh, in international comparison, that's very low. Of course, they work a lot, but they, they don't have to stay at the school. They can go home. It's a very good way of um, combining uh, family life and, 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 and uh, full-time employment. And they have a lot more flexibility, it sounds like, Absolutely. Than, than U.S. Yeah. teachers. That's, that's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful uh, quality of the system. Um, oh, my goodness. Can I ask this question? Quick, oh. we, you know what, I, I've got to take a break here and tell us about our next show, and then, and then we really only have time to come back and summarize, so just, just give me a second here. Um, the next week on 
July 20th. This is the show. It says, how can technology support an inner revolution? A look into the future of artificial intelligence and other technological trends with co-host Todd Benton and Helen Hillix. Imagine that your phone or tablet can detect your emotions in real time. This isn't some far-off fantasy. Already, researchers at MIT's Media Lab have taught the eyes in our machines to detect human emotions. As we look at the screen, the screen can watch us where we look and how we react, and they have developed software so aware of subtle human emotions that they say it can detect if someone is depressed. Currently, it can identify about two dozen different emotions. One application already being demonstrated is that as we are reading, the eye can determine if we're engaged or perplexed with a passage of text. Since this is in real time, the software can apply it to what we're viewing. Let's say we're reading a book and our expression shows that we're struggling with a particular word. The text could then show a definition without us asking. With these experiences, Expanding capabilities, could our devices become our digital counselors, supporting us to stop and reflect? Tune in to find out. That sounds so fascinating to me. So we've got about two minutes left. Um, I don't know, and if we should ask another question, I feel like one of the things... (laughs) Okay. Um, It is quick, but maybe I could email you. I just have have another question, but I, I could... Yep. Yes, good idea. Sure. Um, Thank you. So I I, I just want to say thank you so much, Christina. We had kind of a bit of, this worked out just perfectly, um, but we were, we had lots of technical challenges and questions about how to get together today. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Christina, for sticking with it and Your your perseverance about being on this show, to me, speaks volumes about your <laughs> perseverance about the educational system and your dedication to, to doing what you say. You're, yeah. you're, you're a living example <laughs> of your education system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. I've, I've, uh, it's really lovely to talk to you and lovely to talk to Anne as well. And I hope I didn't give, give a too rosy picture of the Finnish system because we do have problems, as you heard. No, no, that's one of the delightful things about talking to you was that I felt like you gave a very honest and, you know, and helped a very much more balanced picture of the system than some of the articles that make it seem like Mm -hmm. absolutely ideal. And uh, so I I appreciate your balanced perspective. Okay, thank you. Anne, did you want to say anything Mm -hmm. about I appreciate that that as well. It was very informative, and um, I know I feel really inspired, and I I hope to learn even more. So thank you both. And maybe in a couple of years uh, we'll talk again about yeah. <laughs> you know how things are working. And um, if I'm ever in Finland, I'm definitely going to look you up and give you a hug. Good. And you're and thank welcome. <laughs> and if you're ever in California, um, please call us, and um, we'd love to get together. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much for the work you're doing because it really does uh, manifest oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And that's what we're here for. Yes. So thank you and, and goodbye, everyone. We love you, listeners, and let us know that you're there.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.